A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to Silmarillion Stories, where the Lorehounds, your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I'm David. I'm John, and this is our podcast for Of the Beginning of Days, the third story in the Silmarillion. In this episode, we'll be discussing the light sources of Middle-earth, the might of Tolkien, and Tolkien's vision of the Garden of Eden. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send feedback to LOTR at thelorehounds.com, and we'll get to those questions on the next episode. Episodes will be released once per month towards the end of the month. If you are enjoying our coverage of the Silmarillion or any of the other shows that we're covering, and you think you might like to support us directly, head over to patreon.com slash the lorehounds and subscribe today. Uh, for just three bucks a month, you get early access and ad-free podcasts for all of our podcasts, our entire back catalog. Of course, you can always find our ad-supported episodes on our public feed. Just search for The Lorehounds in your podcast application of choice. Another quick ask. Please take a moment and rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts if you feel moved to do so. It really helps us compete with all the other Tolkien podcasts out there, uh, such as That's What I'm Talking About, which we just did a guest spot on. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I, I hope we can do some more guessing around. It's, I, uh, guessing is always a good time. I think Mary Clay from that podcast may be on this podcast at some point. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we invited her. And we should have Maester Anthony on at some point in the near future, too. That said, uh, doing a rating and review, because we are also covering The Last of Us over on HBO. We'll talk more about our upcoming schedule and the programming notes at the end of the podcast. But... There are so many people podcasting about The Last of Us. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, so ratings and reviews really help us move up in the rankings. And the more that we're up in the rankings, the more other people who haven't heard us before have an opportunity to hear us. So we would love it if you did that. But otherwise, we are loving The Last of Us. We're excited to uh, see this show continue. And I, I heard it just got renewed for or, or approved for season two. So that's awesome. It's also crazy that J.R. Tolkien gave it its, his official endorsement. He I mean, did. It's really crazy. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. God, I must have missed that tweet. <laughs> did you think he like uh, fungus or like there uh, are there fungus among us in the um, in the forests of? Uh, as long as they don't use it in French food, he's fine with fungus. Got it. No, no fungus ants. Correct. Correct. Okay. He missed out. 
All right, David. Let's get into our thoughts on this reading. All right. This was a big one. This yes, was a was. much bigger chapter than I had anticipated because, you know, this is known as one of the shorter chapters. Uh-huh. And um, it's, a, it's a lot of information. It's a lot of lore. Yeah. It's a lot of events, honestly. Yeah. So what did you think as a first-time reader hopping into this, you know, the beginning of time? This was kind of what I was expecting when we first started Silmarillion Stories. Um, okay. Like, this is the content that I've been waiting for. Um, everything else has sort of been set up and a bunch of people in the ether and very vague and, and fuzzy. And this is like, okay, we're, you know, we have a planet. We have yeah. like, things happening on this surface of this planet and uh, people are doing stuff and things are going down. And so I was like, oh, this is really cool. And then, a, I don't know, we, we were going to talk about Aule, and then I just read the Aule chapter. And then that was like, wow, this is even cooler. So, like, yeah, I'm um, feeling like we're, we're moving forward now. We've, we've got into the content that we want to get to. Speaking of Aule, yes. let's just address what we're covering today, because it's my fault. Um, if you listened last month and you've just come back for this new Silmarillion story, this probably doesn't apply to you, because I did announce that we were just doing of the beginning of days for this episode. But... Someone on the Discord, I believe it was Elisa, reminded uh -huh. me that I had skipped over a Valle and Yavanna in the plan at all, which right. was a, a big oversight because that's a great story and I can't wait to talk about it. Um, so I was going to lump it in with this episode, and I said that on a few recent Last of Us and Kaleidoscope podcast. I went down to outline this episode, outline this chapter, and I was like, oh my god, I cannot fit <laughs> Ale and Yavanna into this because it's just so much density and so much richness in this yeah, chapter. For sure. And there's cool stuff like Ale and Yavanna need a little bit more space on their own because there's some right. cool stuff that goes down in that chapter too. And so, yeah, it would have been a dense episode for, for this one. Yeah. And let's not rush it. This is a very leisurely stroll yes. through the woods like Indeed. you like to do with Marilyn. <laughs> you know, we're, we're going nice and easy through the Silmarillion. It's a dense work. And we're using our machete to cut through the forest. Wait, I don't think we're it, having a good time. I don't think it, would Tolkien appreciate us using a machete to cut cut through his forests? Probably not any more than he likes The Last of Us. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so why don't we get into this chapter? Sounds good. Let's just set the stage here. This is the first chapter in the Quenta Silmarillion. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? That's, you know, the history of the Silmarils. Right. Before this, we had the Ainulindale, we had the Valaquenta. Those are these set pieces. Those are these overtures, I guess, mm -hmm. that you're getting of the rest of the Silmarillion. But now we're ready to start the clock of, you know, Arda. The Literally. Planet. Right. Yeah. And so this is the story of how we get to the point where Silmarils are made. We finally have the first name drop of, of a Silmaril in this chapter. Okay. And it's also the story of how the Silmarils are lost. That is, and they tell you that in this chapter, right? They, they say the Silmarils, which are now lost. Right. So we're really setting up the major themes and the major subject matters of this book in this chapter. And I think that that's a really cool way to do it is have these like sort of two prologues and then finally we're into the meat of it. This is right. really chapter one of this book. Okay. So we start off with the Valar at war with Melkor. So the Valar are struggling in this war and Tolkis, another Ainu, that's the singular of Ainu, remember those are the holy beings, right? comes late to the party, but he comes to help the Valar and joins them as one of the Valar. He defeats Melkor who hides in the darkness but keeps watch on Arda. 
I love this quote. He has grown dark as the night of the void. Yeah, that was a nice callback to the Ainulindale right. uh, stuff and him being out in the void where he was sort of on his own and, and went a little cuckoo. Yeah, yeah. And you can see he's kind of made this part of his identity, right? Mm-hmm. He's folded the void into himself. Yeah, that's a good, that's a nice interpretation. I like that. So we are before the two trees. Everybody knows the two trees because that was the intro to the Rings of Power. Can I, can I ask you a, a quick question before sure. we get into the lighting of the world and stuff? We have Tolkis. Do we hear more of Tolkis ever again or is this his one? Oh, and yeah, only? he's around. Okay. But does he do stuff? Sure. Yeah. He's, he, he does some fighting. Okay. That's pretty much his main role. He's like this mighty, you know, Tolkien, I am Tolkien, you know, and I was, yeah. uh, you know, having all of these visions of sort of a He-Man-like uh, character. Yeah, like, who was, like a Hercules-type figure. Yeah. Yep. Who was Gilgamesh's um, companion? I think it was Enkidu. Kind of reminded me of him. I think it was Enkidu. I don't know, but Tolkien certainly would have been familiar with that myth, so yeah. I think that that's a good pull. Yeah, Enkidu is sort of, it, it. part of the story of Gilgamesh and Enkidu is like the, um, and I'm probably pronouncing that, so write in, L-O-T-R, at the Lorehounds. Um, I'm looking forward to Marilyn telling us which Slavic myth or Swedish myth that Tolkien pulled from for Tolkien, because right. I, I just know she has the answer, right, and right, I'm looking right. forward to that email. Yeah, we, we got you. We got your number there, Marilyn. Um, but he was this legendary uh, figure and friend of Gilgamesh who is like more of a wild man and sort of a less civilized uh, person. And so that's that's the whole Gilgamesh-Enkidu thing. One of the things about that is, you know, civilized versus quote-unquote uncivilized people. And um, so as I was reading the sort of exploits of Tolkien, I was just thinking of, of Enkidu as this sort of like you know, or of, of Tolkien is just sort of like this wild man who's just like, you know, he's out for a good time, right? He's pounding beers yeah. and, you know, he's yeah, rolling around in the grass. Yeah, you can see him like holding a Stein glass and like exactly. clinking it with someone and going, ha ha, victory is ours, boys. Exactly. That's a, the vibe that I was totally getting. Absolutely. I think that's correct for Tolkien. He is definitely the jock of the crew. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, in the beginning, we have Arda as in darkness. Right. There was fire. We, we note in the book that there was fire from Melkor's nonsense, mm-hmm. and that had been lighting the world. The destruction was actually lighting the world, but that started to fade as Melkor was defeated. Sort of a cosmic background radiation, if you will, for... Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny, though, that like that was the light, right? It was, it was from the darkness. All that you turn to evil, I will turn to good, right? Right, yep. So, Yavanna, who, remember, is the Vala who is in charge of plants, you know, uh, forestry, etc. She plants seeds mm-hmm. of, of for- the forest, of nature, of plants, and they can't grow without light. So, the Vala are like, hmm, we got a problem to solve here. We need to replace this light of the war. Right. The Valar work together to forge these two lamps to light the world. And so, Ale smiths the lamps. Ale is the smithing Vala, obviously. Varda, who is the, the light and uh, star Vala, she fills the lamps with light. And then Manwe, the king of the Valar, hallows the lamps. So this is a team effort that's creating mm-hmm. these two lamps. And they place one of the lamps in the north and one of the lamps in the south, making the world in perfect light. And it, it was like a big effort for them, right? Like it was a lot right. of output. Uh, it was like hard work. 
Yeah, it exhausted them, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that explains a lot of what to come. So I was, this was an interesting thing about the, the lamps, was that in fantasy and all of the fantasy stuff that I've read before, I, I, I don't know that, that this isn't sort of a new idea, a new concept of how to light the world, and then this progression of how the world is lit. Um, and it's starting in darkness, and they're like, oh, yeah, let's hang these two lamps. I'm like, huh, that's just like a, it's a really novel concept to me. And, and I think it's, I don't know, again, I don't know where Tolkien would have pulled his references for this. But I, it was like, huh, that's, that's an interesting construction. And so I, it's just kind of a, this odd thing that I've never been able to quite, quite figure out how to fit it into the rest of the mythology. Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of origin stories of sun and moon. Yeah. But we've not seen the sun and moon as a backup plan of a backup plan. <laughs> it's plan C yes. is the sun and moon. Right. Which is super fascinating, super unique to Tolkien, I think. And, right. and the sun and moon were like, it, we'll get to it, but then like, yeah, they, they derived from something else, which was a backup, right? Like they were birthed by the trees, right? So, right, right. Yeah, it's really a, the, the whole mythology of lighting the world is I, I've never seen a construction quite like this. And I think Marilyn has mentioned too on maybe even on our last podcast that Tolkien actually was like super nervous about messing up his alignment with Catholicism uh-huh. and, and with scientific correctness. And he almost got rid of the lamp and tree story overall and made the sun and moon there from the beginning. That would have been... It would have been a loss. Yeah, and uh, I, in more predictable and sort of more mundane, not as unique right. and special in some ways. So, yeah. Something else I'll mention from, uh, I believe, The Nature of Middle-Earth, which is one of the more recent sort of collections of Tolkien's writings, extended writings. Uh-huh. Uh, Tolkien was, like, weird about how long a day really was during the lamp time and then during the tree time like it might have been that one year in that time was like super long compared to the sun and moon year but it might have also been normal it's it's one of those things where Tolkien just couldn't make up his mind about anything right so right I'm gonna go forward assuming that everything's normal so that my brain works okay <laughs> fair enough okay so there was a place in the middle of Arda called the Isle of Almerin where both the lights met and this was the original place where the Valar lived. So it was basically this place where it was like the peak light because it's getting the, the source of the North and the South Pole. Mm-hmm. And this was like the most perfect place on Middle Earth. It was at the center of everything. It was at the center of this lake in Middle Earth. And so the Valar were there to begin with. They would have ruled sort of, they have, you know, it's one of those modern desks where you can swivel and you can <laughs> swivel and look at your whole office. Right. Okay. That's what the Valar were supposed to do in the beginning. Okay. But that doesn't work out, we learn. Right. This is another interesting thing, like the, the geography of middle, well, of Arda changes multiple times until we yeah. get to the stories that we know. So right. what we see now was not in the beginning. And that is also uh, a very unique construction in a fantasy story, as far as I can tell. Most of the events in the Silmarillion happen in a land that does not exist in the Lord of the Rings. Right. Which is fascinating. Like you, like you said, it's like, man, how do you change your planet that much from these textual ruins that we talk about? 
and still have it be a recognizable world. It's really an impressive feat. Right. So they've made these lamps. Outlay smithed them, we remember, and he had grown really tired from this. Right. He'd been smithing everything. He'd been smithing especially the lamps. He's exhausted. Tolkis had also grown tired because he was off fighting Melkor, you know, being an action hero. And then he gets married to Nessa. And on his wedding night, he becomes content. All right, Tolkien. <laughs> All right, Tolkien. Mr. Catholic over here. You don't want to say it explicitly. Fine. George R. R. Martin would have wrote, wrote the scene, right. written the scene over a chapter. Yes. And given us uh, explicit descriptions. Side note, yeah, we just went on uh, Maester Anthony on Electric Bookaloo. He's doing Clash of Kings uh, read-along over on the Hot D feed at Bald Move. And uh, Maester Anthony assigned us a chapter on Theon. And there's a whole part, it's the first time that Theon goes back to the Isle of Pike. And um, there's just like scenes in there that are just totally unnecessary, Martin. Yep. Like we didn't need the, that level of detail. So uh, it, it does. It's, it's a very... And while Martin is a fabulous writer, um, it, it was a very non-Tolkien thing to include. So it was like a little Absolutely. bit of a whiplash. So I'm glad that Tolkien keeps it uh, PG. So Tolkien was content. Fine. <laughs> fine. And he's in his bed, content. And he doesn't notice all the happenings around him, right? Right. The Valar are sort of drunk with victory and, and live in the life uh, and have become pretty apathetic towards the world around them. They think that they've won here. Mm-hmm. So Melkor, we learn, had spies among the Valar. Presumably mm. Sauron was one of these. Okay. Uh, and knew that the Valar had grown tired because he's getting that intel that, you know, Tolkis is content. Yeah, <laughs> right. So... Yeah, if that guy's on, if the guard dog's on asleep, it's uh, time for you to make your move. Well, remember, he was winning. He was like, he was at least causing so much trouble that the Valar were struggling until right. Tolkis came. Right, right, right. So if Tolkis is out of the picture, he's much better off. Yeah. So Melkor at the same time stirs in the north, but the light of Iluin, that's the northern lamp, was so bright that the Valar could not see him. So this actually reminds me of uh, Macbeth. Okay. Right? Is more. You know the concept in Macbeth of like, a good man cannot see evil? No. Okay, well, that's a theme in Macbeth. Okay, I'll take your like word for it. like this king, mm -hmm. I believe it was the king was so good that he could not see evil intent in someone else. Oh, great. Yeah, okay. Yep, I'm with you now. And I think Tolkien's playing with this. I don't think he's going directly for Macbeth because uh, Tolkien, I believe, hated Shakespeare. I think that was a thing. No, really? I'm pretty sure he was not a fan of Shakespeare. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's really But funny. I do think it's a similar vibe, right? Is like, the Valar are so like, we're pure, we're happy in our little island. Mm. And they just don't even see that Melkor is still there, like, mm, brooding. Right. So Melkor calls his servants to him. And here's a quote. And seeing now his time, he drew near again to Arda and looked down upon it. And the beauty of the earth in its spring filled him the more with hate. Yeah, that was, uh, that's intense. Like, he's not a happy dude. This is a bad dude. Yeah. Again, like, we've talked about the differences between Melkor and Sauron before. Right. Melkor is so much more destructive than Sauron, because Sauron would like the world to at least have some beauty in it, maybe. Right. That he can rule over. Some organization, some structure. Sure. And Melkor's like, no, nah, some people just want to watch the world burn. Yeah, chaos monkey. 
So Melkor creates his fortress named Autumno mm-hmm. under dark mountains. With the new fortress, Melkor mars the spring of Arda and makes the world sick, basically. Yeah, John. So I was curious about uh, Autumno and how it relates to the other secret evil layers that Sauron has. There was the, um, uh, which one? There was a couple of different names, and I keep forgetting, I'm blanking them because they're so complex. There's Yeah, Thang- you've got Thangarad- Thangaradrim. Right, right. That's the one. And you've got Otumno, which is what we're looking at now. So those are two different things. Uh, Thangaradrim comes later, and that's where Angband is, which okay. is where you've usually heard Sauron working out of in the, yes. in the first age. Right. Um, so the thing with Atumno is it's going to get destroyed later, but we're not there yet. Okay. Uh, but these are both in the north. And so okay. evil is a northern thing at this point in the first stage. Interesting. West is best. North is bad. East is <laughs> mixed bag. So, yeah, I mean, this is why, you know, in the Rings of Power, you see Galadriel searching north so much is that the north was actually the, the root of evil. Okay. So before the Valar could strike, because, you know, they figure out that he's messing up the world, because who else would do this? Mm-hmm. Uh, Melkor strikes first, he destroys the lamps, which casts a flame across the world and ruins its perfection forever. Yikes. Yeah. So, and this is where we get into, like, Melkor, like, really messing things up and, like, changing geography and all kinds of stuff. It's like, he messes things up so badly that even the gods, I know they're not gods, but even the most powerful holy beings on this planet can't do anything about it. Right. It's so much easier to destroy than it is to create in this world. Right. And I think that's true in the real world, too. Maybe that's something that Tolkien's trying to say. Yeah, it's, it, it's consistently true, right? Like, it's, it's harder to bring people together, to build consensus, yet bringing in materials, to build, to physically build something where, you know, like, let's just take uh, um, demolishing an old building. You know, you can swing a big thing or, or set off some charges and boom, it goes down. Right. But building that building, boy, did that take a long time. Exactly. So Melkor escapes Tolkis by hiding in Otumno, and the Valar, saving their strength to save what was left of the world, flee to the west of Middle-earth and settle in Ammon. They raise the Pylori, which are mountains that guard Ammon from the east, Yeah, and Manwe's throne is established at the highest peak known as Tanaquetil. I was wondering how to pronounce that. <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to remember it. That's one of those, I, I say this all the time in these podcasts, but you don't have to remember that. It's just where Manway sits, all right? It's the high mountain. Right. So he can see all of the farthest east of Arda from this mountain peak. Here's a quote. Spirits in the shape of hawks and eagles flew ever to and from his halls, and their eyes could see to the depths of the seas and pierce the hidden caverns beneath the world. So this is the birth of the eagles mm-hmm. here. This is where we see, you know, those eagles like Thorandir who will show up later, um, right. and the eagles that help Frodo later too. Right, and yeah, de- definitely. Eagles are a big deal. Even like uh, on um, Numenor, yeah. And like um, the, the shrine there, and the eagles come. If like you go and you pray there, the eagles come. Right, but not if you're being bad. Right, not if you're being bad. So that's it for the Valar in Middle-earth. They've fled to the west. Yeah, they kind of just gave up, right? Yeah. So what do we do now? What do we do now? The world's in darkness, and we need some light. So once Valinor, which is the, the area of Ammon that the Valar live, 
Once that is established, Yavanna creates two trees to help Perion and Laurelin, which will light the world. So Yavanna hallows the ground, but it's actually the tears of Nienna that cause the trees to grow. And and Marilyn talked at length on the last podcast about Nienna. Right. She is sort of the grieving, um, you know, holy being. She is the one who teaches Gandalf pity. She right. is really this like emotional, you know, sadness, but in a good way, kind of Vala. Um, and she is someone who knows that grieving is healthy and that being sad about something and accepting it is happy and is and is good compared to blocking it out. Right. It's a, it's part of your whole being. It's part of your whole expression. And if you don't deal with it, then it causes problems, as we know. Right. And it's grief that gives bloom to these beautiful trees that mm-hmm. like this whole area. Right. I think that that's super powerful. Yeah. Especially in Tolkien's life. Yeah. Yeah, the trees, um, I mean, they're sh- they, they, they own such a myth, you know, an, an important and vital mythical place in the world of, of Tolkien. And people have such reverence for them, you know, in the, within the mythology. And so it was cool for me to read for the first time how these trees were created, how they came about, why they came about, um, you know, what, what the, um, the source of their creation was. So yeah, it was, it was fun to, re- to read this part for the very first time. Talked about the trees, heard about the trees, you know, seen the trees, you know, visually depicted on the television, you know, on Rings of Power, all this stuff, but to actually, you know, read the words for the first time. Yeah, very cool. Uh, and just really adds a lot to my understanding of, of this world and, and, and how it was constructed, how Tolkien constructed it. Well, now I get to reprise one of my greatest hits from the Second Age podcast. Yes, bring it. Follow the trees. Yes. <laughs> it's all about the trees. It is all about the trees. I mean, the trees are this symbol of faith that go throughout the whole mythology, the whole legendarium. Right. And really will tell you when people are being naughty or nice. Mm-hmm. This is really Eru Lubitar's naughty or nice list, if we're going <laughs> to if we're gonna uh, compare him to Santa, Santa Claus. Uh, is that an okay comparison? I don't know. C.S. Lewis put Santa Claus in his book, so I'm going to say it's fine. <laughs> All right. Although I think Tolkien was mad about that. Okay. So here's the description of the trees. I think it's, I think it's very beautiful. The one had leaves of dark green that beneath were as shining silver, and from each of his countless flowers a dew of silver light was ever falling, and the earth beneath was dappled with the shadows of his fluttering leaves. The other bore leaves of a young green like the new open beech. Their edges were of glittering gold. Flowers swung upon her branches in clusters of yellow flame, formed each to a glowing horn that spilled a golden rain upon the ground. I thought it was interesting that he gendered the trees. Yeah, right? We don't talk about that much. Or sex the trees. I don't know. Is it, is it a gender or sex? I mean, it, we, I don't really know because he's just using the pronouns. Well, I don't think the concept of gender was really fully fleshed out in the 1950s when he was writing this. <laughs> not, not in the way that we're, yeah, not in our modern yeah. concepts. Yeah. So he probably would have considered it as the same thing. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense in, in that construct and, and that understanding and in sort of going to a Garden of Eden-like model. And drawing on his uh, sort of religious background to, that you, you'd have a pairing like this, an Adam and Eve, if you will. I don't know if I'm reaching here or stretching, but that seems to be the most logical conclusion. 
I think that's right. I think we have iterations of Eden here, right? And I, mm-hmm. this is something that I meant to bring up earlier, but basically, right. like, I think that you have this original um, Almorin, which is that island that was the original home of the Valar. I think that was Eden at first, right? Okay. That was mm-hmm. that was the first Eden. Right. And now we're at the second Eden, where it's perfect and unmarred, and you have this, right? Like you said, I think that that's actually a really good... I love this, David. Thank you for bringing this in. Adam and Eve starting up the light and, right. and you know, bringing this to to the world. Um, and then later we will have sort of another Eden for elves. And so I think that this is sort of the iterations of Edens, right? Right. Tolkien the Catholic is here. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> he's arrived. <laughs> yes. With no uncertain terms. But he's like, he's doing his sub-creator thing. He's doing his creator-sub-creator thing where he's like taking these concepts playing with them, taking them apart, putting them back into these different configurations, coming up with new ideas, throwing them in there. And yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful construct. And this idea of these two trees cross-fading over, back and forth. And yeah, it is love of trees. And, and um, who is um, uh, in, what's the next story, Aule and um, Ivana? She's worried about her... Uh, the things that she's created in this world, and you know, will people respect them? And so we know that these trees don't like—they're really important, and they and they get really—they <laughs> get messed up really quickly, really badly. Right? Yeah, Ivana doesn't take it easy. Right? She right. Uh, she is not cool with what happens to her creations, and already so much has happened even before now because we right. had the marring of Middle Earth. Yeah, and then they're they're still sort of struggling with not uh, yeah struggling recovering from or dealing with that. I mean, they raised mountains and sort of are living this fortress lifestyle. And it is the grief of that loss mm-hmm. that is what makes the trees bloom. Interesting, right? Like that that whole construct is just so unique. Like who in fantasy and fairy tale, well, at least fairy tale prior to this, that grief or pain is turned into something good, Right, that it's whole, it's a natural part of our existence. That that's just such a, a, a fascinating construct for for him at that time. And then we go back and we talk about Tolkien as a whole person, bringing his whole self to his writings and all the things that he dealt with, the grief that he was dealing with, and yet you know of his the the loss of his family, the loss of his comrades in the war, just you know all the stuff that he had to deal with. And yet he's able to see beauty and he's able to participate and live his life, continue to live his life. And we see that in the trees, I guess you could, you could think of it in that way. Like the, the original light, these lamps were destroyed. Okay, fine. Now we got trees. Cool. Like this is great. Okay. Well, you know, and then we have to go to what's next after as well. So Tolkien once wrote this story, this short story called Leaf by Niggle. And this is a story about a, I believe it's a creator who is trying to create a leaf, and he, he, he wants to create a tree eventually, but he gets so focused on a leaf that he will never finish the tree. <laughs> it sounds like him and his writings. <laughs> right. It was him. It was a story about himself. Got it. Okay. Perfect. And so maybe he's equating these trees as, as the birth of something beautiful out of grief with his books, which were sort of the birth of something beautiful out of his grief. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, I can see it. And that's what I love about, you know, this exploration and examination, because if you just read the, the stories, you know, they're fine as, they're, as they are, 
But then I love looking at Tolkien as this whole person and his struggles and that he's using that and weaving that in. It, to me, it just adds this whole other dimensionality to this creation. And I think it gives it the, some of the potency that has kept it, uh, these stories alive for so long and made them so popular because there is something real in here. It's not just fantasy. That's a great way to put it. I love when we go deeper into Tolkien's <laughs> life because I think that that I think that that's really like sort of at the root of this thing, right? Mm -hmm. So as one faded, the other would wake, so that there would be twilight twice a day, and that's such a beautiful image to me, right? Yeah, is, is just there's the two twilights a day. I mean, you know, we get that in real life too, but like just these trees like fading. I mean, we saw them in Rings of Power, and that was just such an amazing experience. That was one of the highlights of the show for me. Right, and that's where a lot of the, yeah, a lot of money went into those shots, and, and I'm glad that they spent the, that money on those shots. I know, right? Yeah, go ahead. You know what, Jeff? Just throw <laughs> as much it. money as you want at the trees. <laughs> Please. I would watch a full episode of just the trees. Like, wait, maybe they'll make one of those fireplace things, but it's just the trees lighting up and, and you know, in <laughs> alternation. That would, would be cool. It. Ooh. Or one of these like dynamic desktops that you can get for your computer that like oh, sync to the time of day. Oh, dang. Okay. You have to cut this out of the podcast so that like we can make some money off of this idea. I know. We got to write to the Tolkien <laughs> estate tonight. Denied. There's no way they're going to go for it. But <laughs> they're like, are you kidding? <laughs> All right. So the trees contained a sort of holy light so that the elves who saw them in their life were enhanced above those who never saw them. And this is something that I'm pulling from later, but I think it's something to remember. I think it's something that should be in our heads now. Uh huh. And at this time, Middle Earth remained just starlit. Like it was pretty dark there. This was just lighting up Ammon. This was just creating a paradise for the Valar. And I think that's part of the flaw here is that they're only worried about where they live, not where the children of Iluvatar are going to live. Yeah. The, and the whole thing of, uh, they really kind of, forsake their duty, right? Like, are they, right. they're supposed to be getting things ready. Instead, they pull back and raise mountains and sort of like chill out in their own little city and like, oh, everything's good over here. But they're not thinking about Iluvatar's children. This is my first entry in my case against Manway as a leader. <laughs> he's I a think, bad leader. Yeah. I personally think. Yeah. I, I, yeah. He's not doing what I would expect him to do. No. And I, and I don't think he ever does. I think he, I think in the third age is when he finally figures it out a little bit. And maybe uh -huh. that's the point is that like, it's, it takes him just as it takes a lot of people experience to learn how to properly rule. That's a, that's interesting. That's a deeper cut. That's a deeper cut. Yeah. Because it takes him taking his hand off the wheel a little bit and letting people exercise their free will, mm -hmm. but also helping them in the way he was supposed to to succeed against evil. Yeah. Um, interesting thought there, too, because, like, were they, were they prepared to fight evil? Were they prepared to fight Melkor? I mean, really, they were supposed to go tend the garden, I guess you could say? Right. And instead, they've got, like, you know, uh, some sort... You know, they've got an evil creature running around stomping on all the flowers and kicking over the flower pots and upending the, the garden beds. And their response is, well, I guess Middle-earth is Melkor's now. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And yeah, we're just going to go hang out over here in Amman. We're going to raise up some mountains, defend ourselves, chill out. And Melkor uses that to his advantage, right? Like, this is how he grows his power, right. is that it's in Neglect. darkness. There's in no neglect. one there. Right, exactly. He uses the apathy of the Valar mm -hmm. to grow. It's kind of like, if you watch The Last Jedi, which I've defended as a movie, <laughs> and you have Luke Skywalker saying, well, the Jedi 
This is spoilers for the Star Wars series, but if you haven't seen that by now, I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah sorry, we can't help you there. The the Jedi, in their arrogance and their apathy, allowed a Sith Lord to gain control of the Republic? Right. It's the same thing here, right? It's, right. it's these people who are supposed to be guardians shirking their duties. Yep, exactly. But anyway, eventually we will have Spabimi, right? <laughs> Shall prove but mine instrument. That's what it is. That's what it is. Yep. All right. I think that's a good note to take a break on now that Middle Earth is in darkness and everything's terrible. And we're back. Now it's time to take a weird diversion because Tolkien is throwing in some more lore here that almost seems unrelated, right? Like it it sort of hits you randomly, I think. This elf lore that he suddenly brings in. Yeah. So we learn that Aule, the, the, the smithing Vala, we've talked about him quite a lot today. Yep. Is sort of the the herald of the Noldor, right? He's going to he's going to be the patron saint of the Noldor and teach them smithing. And we also get this line here that's kind of a wild line considering the significance of the story and how throwaway it is here. The Noldor also it was who first achieved the making of gems, and the fairest of gems were the Silmarils, and they are lost. Yeah, like, um, uh, hello, what? <laughs> like Silmarils? That's a summary of the whole book. Yeah, that's it. Um, do we get more? Yeah, congratulations, you don't have to read the Silmarillion now. You know the whole plot. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> My question to you is, because I'm not skipping ahead and looking ahead, do we get more stories about the smithing of the Silmarils? More stories? There's not much story, right? It's mostly okay. just that they were smithed. But we do learn about Feanor, who smithed them. We okay. do learn about the man who smithed them, or I guess the elf who smithed them. Right. And uh, the family of Feanor. I mean, the family of Feanor is going to be sort of the main issue in mm-hmm. this in this story, right? This okay. is going to be the main, uh, some of the main characters here. So don't worry. You will get more Silmarils than you ever wanted. Perfect. Okay, good. Yeah, because if you're... If I'm not skipping ahead here, I'm just like, okay, there's these stones, and we don't have them. So, <laughs> what right. do you do? Uh, okay. But that's where you're getting the name from. It's like, all right, see, so the, we know that there are these Silmarils, and they're going to be lost one day, and the whole book is what's in between. <laughs> so, Manwe taught the Vanyar, that's another faction of elves we'll talk about later. He just throws these terms in here, like you're supposed to know what they mean. Right. Don't worry, we'll go through these in detail later. But he taught the Vanyar, song and poetry. Umlo was similar with the Teleri, but this quote sort of distinguishes this. It says, the Teleri learned much of Umlo, and for this reason their music has both sadness and enchantment. Now, Umlo is the, the water bala, right? The, the seas, the right. oceans. Mm-hmm. I think that that's an interesting way to describe the ocean, right? Sadness and enchantment. Yeah, right. Uh, I, I don't know how to factor for that. <laughs> I don't, it's a real head scratcher. It's so strange. Like, what was Tolkien thinking here? Yeah, why is water sadness? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was just the guy. Maybe he's just, maybe he moves the waves in sadness. Mm. Maybe it's that, you know, the, the ocean can be violent, right? The ocean can take from you. Yeah. But it, it can also be beautiful. You know, you could also see the waves going. You could also, you know, see, you know, go diving and see the wildlife. I mean, I think that that's... Part, that's all part of it. I think that's all part of life is this balance. Right. Interesting. Okay. So 
This is another quote that we get randomly. Elves die not till the world dies, unless they are slain or waste in grief. And to both these seeming deaths they are subject. Neither does age subdue their strength unless one grow weary of 10,000 centuries. And dying, they are gathered to the halls of Mandos in Valinor, whence they may return in time. So, who is Mandos? Let's break this down, right? This is a dense quote here. Yeah. Mandos Th- is the Doom Vala. Okay. Now, doom, again, is a word that Tolkien uses in a classical sense, meaning fate. It is not like bad doom, something bad's going to happen. Right. It is the, the fate of elves. Right. So, Mandos has this hall in Valinor where he basically, it's a waiting room, right? It's, it's a waiting room to, if you're an elf, you're going to get reincarnated eventually if you do things right. That's supposed to be the rule, not the exception. Okay. And then if you are a man, you're supposed to be there for a very brief time and then go off into whatever the afterlife is that Eru has prepared. All right. So it's the afterlife uh, foyer. You ever watch Beetlejuice? A long time ago. I've, I've since forgotten probably most of it. Well, you know how they have the take take a number waiting yes. room where where they're trying to yeah. So that that's what I picture the halls of Mandos to be. It's a it's a disorganized place. <laughs> but I think that Nienna is involved with that too, right? Nienna is uh, is helping people grieve and helping people sort of I think accept their fate, right? Mm-hmm. Accept their doom. Okay. And then we also learn that elves don't die, right? Elves yeah. don't die except with the world, and then they have these these other ways of unnaturally dying. That's when we get into this uh, serial longevity question. Right. I love how Marilyn puts it that way. That's a, that's a good way to put it, right? They, are, they will stay alive unless something interrupts that. Yeah, and I think that's used quite regularly among the Tolkien literati. Um, I definitely have heard the um, uh, Prancing Pony guys uh, refer to it that way. No, it's Marilyn's. <laughs> okay. Well, you want to start an academic fight? Go ahead. That's on you. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Somebody write in. I won't air it. So now we get to healing Middle Earth. This is sort of something that's almost lip service, right? Is uh, this quick mention that Ulmo sort of never forsook Middle Earth. He was like always right there, the water, Vala. Um, Yavanna worked in healing Melkor's damage. So she's like replanting the, the plants, the greenery. Um, and Orome, the hunter Vala, worked at hunting down Melkor's servants while he waited in Otumno. So Melkor's hiding away. He's like, yeah, I'm just going to let my servants do my work right now, because if I get caught, it's all over, right? Right. Makes yeah. sense. Makes sense. It's why we have the Secret Service. If you, if you get the head of the country, if you get the head of the forest, it's going to be a bigger issue than if you get some of the servants. Right. So yeah, these three Valar are really like doing most of the work of maintaining Middle Earth, and the other Valar just kind of chilling out. Went off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, wasn't it Orome who later discovers the children? That is true, and that's why he's discovering them. Right? Is right. that he's he's not willing to forsake this land. He's not willing to give this up to evil. Right. And then a bunch of Melkor's. Um, uh, servants like we don't ever does Tolkien ever really give us a detailed account or are they just sort of bad guys uh also known as Balrogs also known as other creatures do we ever like find out more about his uh, um, evil forces no okay <laughs> not really I think we ba- we basically get Sauron as a named servant obviously yeah. mm-hmm. we get the Balrogs yeah we get some dragons. There's going to be dragons right, involved. Right, right. Um, and then there's going to be fire spirits, which 
I, not, not necessarily all Balrogs, I guess. Okay. Um, and then there's going to be orcs later. So we're going to, we're going to get a cast of characters, but not a lot of named ones. It's crazy that the, yeah, they just, they just retreat to the other side of the the ocean and then just like, what do we get? Yeah. It's, it's really shocking. <laughs> it's like a real yeah, shocking dereliction of duty. It is right. I mean, again, the case against Manway. Yeah. I should rename this podcast, the case against Manway. <laughs> Can you litigate it? Yeah. That's what we'll do. Yeah. All right, so now we get another big lore dump. Again, this is why I was like, we can't do Ali and Yavanna. <laughs> another big lore dump. We're just going to learn about the Gift of Men like it's nothing. Yeah, he kind of crammed a bunch of stuff. Like, it'd be interesting to to understand the timeline of this chapter, because uh, Christopher put all this stuff together, right? So, yeah, um, yeah. he's did he, was this in original construct? Or I'm sure there are are scholars out there who have deconstructed all of this kind of stuff, but like, yeah, was Christopher just sort of shoehorning some things in here because he didn't have any place else and it kind of needed to go at the beginning? Or was this all alluded to by uh, J.R. himself in these opening chapters? So there's only a few things that I think are original from Christopher. Okay. One of them is, I'll point to it later, it's, it's the Thingol and, and uh, the, the fall of Doriath. Um, that makes no sense to anyone listening for the first time. So, um, just ignore me, but you know, there's a couple, there's a couple things that he writes other than that. It's mostly Tolkien. I mean, guy, guy, Gabriel K also helped Christopher put this together. Right. He's another famous fantasy author. If you don't know who that is, but didn't, you know, I guess the question is that comes to mind is, is, is did, was this opening chapter with all this extra lore dump stuff? Was that? constructed and they just sort of cleaned it up or did they find these fragments of other pieces and then Christopher thought oh well I guess we got to kind of put it into this chat we got to shoehorn it into this early chapter because it doesn't really belong anywhere else that's a good question and I can get back to you on the next podcast because Christopher basically broke down how he picked all the sections of the Silmarillion oh so there's like a Middle Earth. there's a director's commentary on the on the yeah. DVD set that's basically what history of Middle Earth is in large part. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's cool then. He'll be like, this is why I took this version of what he wrote. Got it. Because the reconstruction effort, like, gosh, that's, uh, well, I mean, it was, a, it was a lifetime of work. It, it literally was. Yeah. I mean, he did the Silmarillion pretty quickly, but that's, again, like, I do think that most of this was pretty final. For okay. Him, because his goal was to release the Silmarillion before he died. Like, he was actively true. working on the Silmarillion that's in the true. last few years of his life. That's true. And this was the thing that he told Christopher, please publish this if I die without finishing it. So right, yeah. I think Explicit that he definitely had more clear sketches of these things okay. than he did other things like, um, I don't know, of Baron and Luthien, like of the, you know, the book Baron and Luthien, right. where he has these versions where we talk about the different things. And it's, um, yeah, this is definitely one of his more complete works. So yeah. I, I don't think that. I, I do think that Tolkien just kind of does this, right? He kind of just goes, oh, yeah, here's this other crazy thing I thought of. Right. Let me just graft it on here. Bonk. Right. And when we get done with this episode, we're going to do a recap of this. Okay. In very plain terms, <laughs> because I know this is a lot of stuff in this chapter. This is a lot of setup, which I've said every episode so far, and it's true. Um, and, it, and it's just a lot of dense concepts, but we're getting through it, folks. We're getting through it. So let's talk about the gift of men. The doom of man. Doom. We talked about this actually a lot on uh, That's What I'm Talking About. Mm -hmm. 
We talked about it in relation to Aragorn and Arwen, right? Because yeah, Arwen right. chooses, she opts in to the gift of men. Right. And she, yeah, and it's a tough thing for her at the end. Uh, right. After she, she kind loses. of regrets it. Yeah, kind of. And her father knew it. Elrond knew it. He was like, this is going to suck. If you do this, yeah. it's going gonna, it's gonna to be rough. And it was. When you think about Elrond, he watched his brother go through it. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. We, this is back enough to- <laughs> third age nonsense. We are way further back than this. All right. Back to Silmarillion. So the gift of men, for it is said that after the departure of the Valar, there was silence, and for an age Iluvatar sat alone in thought. Then he spoke and said, Behold, I love the earth, which shall be a mansion for the Quendi and the Atani, that's men. Those are elves and men. Got it. But the Quendi shall be the fairest of all earthly creatures, and they shall have and and shall receive, and bring forth more beauty than all my children. And they shall have the greater bliss in this world. But to the Atani, I will give a new gift. Therefore he willed that the hearts of men should seek beyond the world, and should find no rest therein. But they should have a virtue to shape their life amid the powers and chances of the world, beyond the music of the Ainur, which is as fate to all things else. And of their operation everything should be, in form and deed, completed and the world fulfilled unto the last and the smallest. So men have free will, right? Like, yeah. This is what he's saying. Right. The gift of men, this, this death, this longing to be away from the creation of world, I think it's intertwined with free will, right? It's, 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 I think that Tolkien is saying it's inseparable. If you're going to have free will, you have to have this yearning for something better than this world, mm. which is part of death. Right. And if you have free will, what does it mean to have free will if there's no sort of beginning, middle, and end? The specialness of it is becomes unspecial because you don't have a finite construction, if that makes sense. Like, by, by having an end, um, it's the last fry in, the, in your container, right? If, you know, it's... Knowing that there's a last one makes all the other ones more delicious. And then if you don't have it, it's like, or, or you, you accidentally eat the last fry and you don't realize it's the last fry, you know, there's like a disappointment. Um, so it's somehow tied into how we perceive our own existence and that if it just goes on forever, then, yeah, you know, I think the elves go through some of that, right? They're like, oh, my God, like, you know. It just goes on and on and on. Like, how many more songs right. can we write? How many more paintings can we paint? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true. And I think that, I think that honestly, a lot of elves feel that by the end. Yes. And especially after, you know, maybe they don't live in the same kind of good state forever because of Melkor. Right. It starts to weigh on them. Right. And, the, and men get a reprieve. And also, it seems that like what... What Iluvatar was going for was that men want to leave, right? They want something better. Mm-hmm. They want to both improve where they are and get to somewhere better than where they are. Right. And so that's why it is a gift in his eyes and in Tolkien's eyes to give them an exit ramp. Mm. Interesting. But Melkor casts a shadow upon the gifts of men, which is why they fear it. So right. Melkor says, well, you don't know what's next, though, so I'm going to make you fear it. And this is the source of a huge amount of 
second and third age strife, right? Like this is the source of all the problems. Yep. It's pretty bad. Yeah. It's pretty bad. That's, uh, I mean, even in the first age, there's some, some dark sides of men too that, mm. that all often arise from this is, it's just like, this is something that was supposed to be a gift and, uh, you know, spabimi, but yeah. for now it's, it's a little dark. Yeah. Something that I found really fascinating in this chapter was this quote, it seems to the elves that men resemble Melkor most of all the Ainur, although he has ever feared and hated them, even those that served him. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating to me that, that, I mean, again, this is elves and this whole book is supposed to have been written by elves, mm-hmm. but like men as being the closest to Melkor, these, this volatile guy who's focused on destruction, that's pretty harsh. Yeah. That's interesting. I don't know how to factor it. I was trying to think about Rings of Power and some of what they were doing in there. And I, I know that's third age, no, third age nonsense. But yeah, I'm trying to, it is, it is a really, like, it's a real head scratcher. I'm like sitting here trying to puzzle this out. I think that the answer is that elves are racist. Mm. I mean, kind of, right? Like they do see men yeah. as really much inferior to them. Sure. Yeah. The little brother that never really lived up to the standards of the family. Right. And then they get this weird gift that they don't get, right? Right. And I don't think I don't think that uh I think that the elves pay lip service to the gift of men, but then when you look at how Elrond talks about it, mm-hmm. I don't think they really believe that, right? I think that they believe that it's a punishment almost. Hmm. Interesting. Huh. I think that they they repeat it. They re- they repeat the talking point that it's a gift. Right. Right. But if you really look at the way that they discuss it, actions not words. Yeah. Right. They are they are just not not really cheering for the deaths of men. <laughs> and they don't come easy to aid when they, you know, they're, yeah, there's some friction and strife among them, right. between them, I should say. Right. So let's keep an eye on that. Let's keep an eye on this relationship between elves and men, especially when we get towards Beor the Old. Okay. Right. When we get there, let's discuss this again. Sounds good. One more quote. Yet the Old of Valar declared to the elves in Valinor that men shall join in the second music of the Ainur, whereas Iluvatar has not revealed what he purposes for the elves after the world's end, and Melkor has not discovered it. So this is another fascinating thing, which is that men are the, are the ones who are going to participate in the second music of the Ainur. This mm-hmm. is like the sort of the post-apocalyptic thing where the world is healed after Melkor is finally defeated. Right, which we never get to. He never writes it. He never writes it. Right. Um, I think the idea is that we are in an age of the world right now, okay, and that eventually it'll come. But anyway, yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating that sort of the elves are just like, what's going to happen to them? Like they have sort of, you, you, like they have serial longevity for sure, right? But when that ends, there's no plan for them that anybody knows about, right? There's only a hope that Eru will do something nice for them, and Melkor has not discovered it. That's interesting. Like, he's still active in some way. Right. Well, that's it. That's all I have for this. Uh, Why don't we recap quick? Because that was uh, a lot. That's a lot. Yep. So we started with a war with Melkor. We had Tolkis come in, the jock of the Valar. He defeated Melkor. Um, And then we had the two lamps created, which lit the world. Um, But then Melkor struck them down. And after the world was marred, the Valar had to flee Middle-earth and go to Valinor. Once there, they created the two trees, which lit Valinor, but did not light Middle-earth. So that was in Twilight, where Melkor was able to gain power. Mm -hmm. 
We got some elf lore. We got some lore about healing Middle Earth, where only a few of the Valar healed the the uh, you know the mainland. And then we talked about the gift of men and sort of uh, elf men relations. And I think that's about it for today. I mean, it, it it sounds like a lot when you do it, but really when you boil it down, there's only a few things that you have to remember here. Right. So I hope everyone enjoyed this summary because this was a lot to put together, but I think it's such important stuff. Yeah. Like this is such foundational stuff for where we're going. Absolutely uh, foundational and dense. But that's sort of what I'm, I have been expecting from the Silmarillion is this kind of stuff. Like this kind of intensity and, you know, uh, creation and this happens and then that happens. So, yeah, I, I feel like, like I said at the top of the podcast, it's like, okay, here we are. Let's go. Like, I'm, I'm ready right. for the, like the, the main course of things here. And some chapters are going to be like this with a lot of lore dump. And some mm -hmm. chapters are going to be a lot more narrative. Like some chapters read sort of like a book, okay. like, like a novel. Okay. And then it, it's just such a weird work yeah. because it's not all history book and it's not all novel. Right. It's sort of a mix of both. Interesting. All right. Cool. Good. I feel good. All right. Well, why don't we move on to our one feedback item? Okay. Would you like to read it, David? Sure. Just a reminder too, uh, feedback to send it to lotr at thelorehounds.com or head over to our new website, thelorehounds.com, and we've got a couple of fancy tools there. There's a contact form, and if you scroll down all the way to the bottom of the contact page, there's even a way to leave us a voicemail. So if you want to send us a voicemail, we'll be able to play it back on a future episode. So please send us your questions, your comments, your thoughts, your ideas, and uh, we'll definitely get to them. All right, so we have Michael N., and he asks uh, a question that is not Silmarillion-related necessarily, but, you know, we're taking all the feedback. So he's talking about the positioning of Erebor. He says, hello, boys. Uh, huge fan of all the shows, been listening since the beginning, and have learned so much. I truly look forward every week uh, learning about Tolkien lore. So probably, um, you know, from the original uh, uh, Second Age and uh, Rings of Power lore casts. Anyway, he says, but I have a question about Erebor. Every year between Christmas and New Year's, my wife and I watch the Hobbit trilogy. Yes, I know it has its flaws, but out of the two trilogies, it's the one my wife will watch with some Tolkien, and some Tolkien is better than none. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, works for us. My question is, why is the positioning of Erebor so important? I feel like it's too far northeast to make any real difference. I'm curious why its position is so vital or to the legions of orcs. Look forward to hearing back from you and hope your new year is off to a great start. Well, thank you, Michael. I hope your new year is off to a good start too. And I hope you guys had a good time um, doing your Hobbit rewatch this year. John, do you have any thoughts of this, or is this is he asking something that's a little bit on the edge of our our thoughts here? Well, I'll tell you that probably my third age lore is the weakest of all my lore because I've spent so much time sifting through the first and second age for the uh -huh. show coverage and whatnot. Okay, but from my understanding, Erebor was less for the orcs a locational thing, uh -huh. and it was more of a personal vendetta against Thorin and his family. Okay. It was more that, you know, Thorin had uh, injured one of the orc leaders, um, and that, you know, there was wars between the, the orcs and the dwarves, and this, in the Third Age, becomes the stronghold of dwarves. And so, especially in the War of the Ring, 
where the where Sauron's forces are attacking it again. I again, I don't think it's as much. It's not as much the location, although the location does help them squeeze things like Lothlorien. But it's more that like that's the stronghold of the dwarves, and that's a full people of Middle Earth, and uh, you know Sauron wants to control everybody. Well, I hope that answered your question, Michael. And if it didn't, feel free to write back next month and I'll do more research. Sounds like a good plan. All right, John, we should do our uh, Patreon shout out. So like we mentioned before, we have a, a Patreon. And if you feel so inclined, we love it when people subscribe. And we have our lore master top tier, which we just put on there just for fun, for the heck of it. And the crazy thing is, is people are subscribing at that level. <laughs> and so we always like to give them a shout out and a thanks. So Samartian, Cyrus, Mark H, Michael G, thank you, thank you, thank you. New lore master, David W. And so Michelle E just upgraded from lore hound to lore master. So thank you both so much, David W and Michelle E. We are just so honored and uh, it means a lot to us, you guys. Seriously, we work hard try to make a good podcast for you guys and your Patreon support makes it so that we can do it. Like it's, it's actual material support for us to do this. So thank you all very much to all our patrons and our lore masters. All right, let's talk about uh, what's coming up next for us and for um, our compatriots. Maester Anthony, uh, as we mentioned before, is continuing his Clash of Kings read-along. So check out the Hot D feed over at Bald Move if you are a Game of Thrones fan. Uh, we're going to be on his podcast. That podcast is gonna, that we're recorded on is going to drop February 23rd. So be on the lookout for that. I love talking with Mr. Anthony. I always find our conversations with him really inch, really rich and varied. And uh, we had, a, I, I don't know, I had a good time. Did you have a good time? I, I would assume so. I had so. a great time. Cool. Which is, was shocking to me because I, I always considered myself since the end of Game of Thrones, fan bankrupt in that universe. Right, yeah. I mean, Hot D did a, a lot to resurrect my fandom a little bit, but I hadn't read the books at all since the show ended. Right. And going back to this world was actually really enjoyable. And and Maester Anthony breaks it down in a way that really dives into the themes, sort of the way that we do in the Silmarillion story uh, podcast. So I, I think if you like this podcast and you also like the Game of Thrones universe, definitely check that out. Yeah, 100%. Uh, also check out, um, Anthony has a, another podcast called Cocoons of Horror, where him and his buddy Steve um, do movie reviews of like old, uh, like 70s and 80s horror films. They do some uh, more recent stuff as well, but it's a good time. They, they have a, it's a real tongue in cheek sort of podcast covering, you know, uh, silly movies. So that's a lot of fun. So for us coming this Friday, we're going to have a Star Wars episode out. We're going to talk about some general news, uh, some coverage plans. Uh, we've got a new idea for a new podcast. Uh, well, not new podcast, but a new topical area. And we're going to cover the first five episodes of season two of The Bad Batch, which I'm really enjoying. It's actually turning out to be a fun season of television so far. It's good quality. It's good quality. Yeah. I'm liking it. Uh, then we've got Second Breakfast, our Patreon exclusive. That's going to come out February 12th. So if you're a, a patron, look uh, on the Patreon. There's a, uh, We posted a uh, message where you can send us in your ideas, your thoughts, your hot takes. Um, and so let us know what you're thinking and uh, uh, what you're watching, what you're playing, um, and your thoughts on cereal. This month's topic uh, of breakfast is cereal. 
The Last of Us, we're covering that on HBO. John, I think you're really enjoying the show so far. I can't get enough of it. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. I'm glad we're covering it. it. It feels really good to be podcasting about a quality show like that. Me too. I'm really enjoying it. I mean, I'm, I'm actually replaying. I never finished the second game and I'm uh-huh. playing it in full now. Okay. And it is an emotional journey and I can't wait for the show to get to it, but it's not going to happen for years now. <laughs> right. So um, those come out every Wednesday. So show drops Sunday night and then we get our episodes out on Wednesdays. Our next Silmarillion story is going to be the end of February, February 27th. John, what are we going to be covering on that one? So there, I'm changing the schedule from the no, last okay. time. So I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is the <laughs> new plan we're doing of Aule and Yavana, which is just the next chapter. I'm going to update these show notes so that this show note will be correct for next month, and it'll have everything through, I think, June. Sounds good. And now, should we tease our new Book Nook project? I think we should. Okay. We got Marilyn. Marilyn, Marilyn, and we were talking about some stuff, and she's like, you know, we should do a podcast on this. And we're like, okay. And so we're doing it. We are doing The Wizard of Ursi by Ursula Le Guin. We're doing the whole Ursi, uh, what do they call it? The Ursi cycle. And we're starting with the Wizard of Ursi book. Um, it's a book that has a lot of nostalgia value for me. I really enjoyed reading it when I was a younger person. And, um, Marilyn has got a lot to say about it. John, uh, I think you were just reading it recently. Yeah, I just finished it recently. That should be dropping sometime in March, uh, and we will have more specifics on the date for that. But uh, if you're into it, grab a copy and get reading. It's a short read. It's pretty easy. So, Yeah, didn't take me long at all. Yeah. Cool. Anything else? I think that's all. I'm just so happy to be talking about Tolkien again. I have so much fun. Yeah. When we went on that guest podcast, and that's what I'm talking about. I mm-hmm. was like, man, it's good to be back in this world. I can't wait to record this month's Silmarillion story. And we got a long wait until Rings of Power comes back. Yeah, we sure do. And But honestly, we're going through the Silmarillion at a pace where we're not even going to finish it by the time Rings of Power comes back. So That's true. Stay with us through the journey. We're here, walking through Middle Earth on the back of Tulkis's mount, <laughs> and we will stride on into glory <laughs> you're really stretching this one <laughs> we'll see you next time the lorehounds podcast is produced by the lorehounds and published by bald move you can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact get early and ad-free access to all lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash the lorehounds any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities thanks for listening A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies, Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>